0: I'm privileged to be a part of, them. I'm privileged to be on this side of the table. I know that there are many who don't have access to the tables that I sit at, and to the resources that I'm able to help shepherd into the community, and ultimately that's really why I was drawn to philanthropy, right? Like, mm-hmm. it, it, You know, it's that desire to really put resources into the hands of the folks that I know need the most.
1: I'm Marissa DeSales, and I'm your host for What If, a podcast exploring the nonprofit sector. The What If podcast is a series of conversations featuring speakers from the Impact Foundries What If conference taking place on February 8th and 10th, 2022. I am Marissa DeSales, mother of Bethany, daughter of Leveda, granddaughter of America. Home is Sacramento with stints in L.A., New York, Seattle, San Francisco, and Atlanta in my earlier years. You can call me she, her, and I am an African-American of mixed heritage with roots on three continents. I am the youngest child of two civil servants, a prosecutor and an employment advocate. I started working for a children's museum in the Bay Area in the late 1900s and fell in love with nonprofits. Since then, I've closely followed trends in marketing, fundraising, and communications for nonprofits. I spent over a decade growing a local organization working with people with disabilities. When the pandemic hit, I was burnt out and fantasizing about a sabbatical, and suddenly I had it. I grew a vegetable garden in my front yard and found myself reconnecting with neighbors and community. I started writing for fun poetry, and short stories instead of email newsletters and grant proposals. The pandemic has allowed me the space to dig deeper and synthesize all my learnings over the years. The enforced isolation, the confinement to home, the juggling match of overseeing two distance learning children, starting a consulting business, and being a family caregiver to my aging parent. This combination of challenges forced me to be more creative, more authentic, truer to myself than at any other time in my life. In a weird way, and I almost feel guilty saying this, I'm happier in my work now than I have ever been. I'm so grateful to experience opportunities to have impact on a macro level, doing work that is community-centered, uplifts people, and furthers equity. I joined the team of the What If Conference because what if is my favorite question. I think this moment in humanity's history demands a reckoning of us, not just a survival. What if everything you knew was suddenly, fundamentally changed? How would you change and what would you keep? What would you carry walking forward? This is a daily, ongoing, philosophical and practical question as our world continues to change. I'm so excited to be part of the planning team for the What If Conference I'll be hosting some conversations and workshops. All the speakers are top-notch, and I'm hoping I get a chance to interview all of them at some point. If enough people subscribe to this podcast, maybe we can keep it going after the conference and offer these insights to the community on an ongoing basis. I see this podcast as an opportunity to explore disruptive concepts in the impact sector. This is a deep dive into the minds of people whose work is truly transformational and whose hearts are committed to sharing their insights for the benefit of all of us working in the trenches. I'm fascinated by this moment in which we find ourselves. Our world is changing at a dizzying pace, and businesses are scrambling to adapt and survive. Nonprofits must adapt too. This is a chance to ask some of those difficult and complex questions and maybe find our way closer to some answers. This is a space to dream and wonder and ask, what if? And I'm pleased to welcome our first guest, Neva Flohr from the Sacramento Region Community Foundation. Neva, I want you to own your own description of yourself. Rather than me singing your praises, which I would happily do. So (laughs) (laughs) will you just introduce yourself? Sure.
0: I am Neva Floor and I am the daughter of Joanne and Mingo Nesmith who moved to New Jersey when they were both very young from South Carolina. So where my, I call home my roots are in New Jersey and I you know have an older brother 8 years older than me but we we'd say that we sort of both had our parents he's so because he's so much older you know I would say I'm kind of a a single child by just design, I've had my parents for their individual attention for a really long time. So I straddle understanding what it is like to share space, but also really covet when I can be by myself. And so this has been an interesting play on that in the pandemic. So yeah, I, I am a creative, and I came to the work that I'm in now through a various sort of jobs in the creative world, both as an artist but also as an art advocate. And it was when I decided um, at the time I was living in Oakland, California, which is where I say I was born in New Jersey, I grew up in Oakland, and I realized that I had come to a place in my professional career where where I was working in the nonprofit space, and I wanted to get on the other side of who was kind of in philanthropy and who, who were the gatekeepers and who were making decisions. And so I sort of backed into Sacramento, not knowing that it was going to be the place where I would land and actually make a home and now have a family to help lead the Sacramento Region Communities Foundation Transforming the Creative Economy Initiative, and have since then just been so honored and privileged to be able to work with so many local folks beyond the arts, because I then moved into another position. You know, I've I've been able to grow my family here. I'm a mom. I have two little littles of what is eight months old and his name is Bailey and August she was three and I I don't oh she's gonna be upset that I left her last but I am partnered to an amazing woman her name is Michelle and we've been together now a little over 11 years so you know we're just kind of doing our thing and I'm here and I'm excited to be
1: here that's amazing. I I have admired your work from afar with the Sacramento Region Community Foundation. I remember the first time that we met in person, you had just had August, and I, I think maybe you had just come back to work from maternity leave, in fact, and it was at a mixer or something that the uh, uh, community foundation put on, and we chatted at that time. And I'm a mom too, and I, I, you know, I remember I think telling you something about you know trying to hold on to the time that you have when they're so small because it slips through your fingers so quickly. And fast forward to you know it's th- over three years later. And you now have two under the age of three during a global pandemic, which is an insane adventure. I can't even imagine to be on right now, uh, working and raising little littles in a really rapidly changing world, and and how to even you know make sense of it ourselves, let alone teach them to navigate these extraordinary challenges in this extraordinary time. Speaking of extraordinary challenges and, and extraordinary times, we've seen a lot happen in the nonprofit world in this past almost two years now. And one thing that really excited me really, really quickly, early on into recognition of, of the crisis, was Foundation's response. And I saw things like grant restrictions being loosened, applications being shortened or uh, fast-tracked, right? Funding decisions made really rapidly, opening those floodgates to get the resources out into the community where they were so desperately and urgently needed. And I think a lot of us in the nonprofit world you know, we're delighted to see that kind of agility from a sector that, you know, maybe isn't necessarily known Say it. for its <laughs> agility. The foundations tend to be slow and thoughtful and, and cumbersome and bureaucratic. And conservative, and that's part of you know what they have been chartered to do is to you know safeguard pools of resources so that they can then be available, especially in t- times of crisis. I'm, I'm really wondering now, mid pandemic or wherever it is we find ourselves at this moment, you know what if any of those changes will end up sticking, and I'm just curious because you sit on the other side of the table in the world of grant makers and fund givers. And I'm really interested to hear what your perspective is on on these changes.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you naming that. There has been a ton of change and transformation in the way that local philanthropy and and national philanthropy has stepped up to the challenge, uh, particularly in this crisis response. I hope it all sticks right like aspirationally <laughs> right. i would love to see this continue we've learned so much through this process so many difficult conversations got fast tracked because of the pandemic right we just didn't have the time right and what i what i love i think above all and you named so many things that are silver lining changes that have happened because of the pandemic as you said you know decreased barriers to accessing resources getting dollars out of the door and into the hands folks that need them more quickly, looking at more aligned partnership, lifting up the voices of local agents and actors who really are closest to the challenges and are more adept, apt to really come up with the solutions to those challenges. What for me was most transformational about this that I'd love to see continue is really the belief,
1: hmm.
0: the belief in local community members that they have the capacity right. to do this work. And I'll say this. I I love being in the sector. It is complicated. (laughs) It's nuanced, right? It's like being in a, you know, sort of not sometimes healthy relationship, but it's something that I'm privileged to be a part of. I'm privileged to be on this side of the table. I know that there are many who don't have access to the tables that I sit at into the resources that I'm able to help shepherd into the community and ultimately that's really why I was drawn to philanthropy right like mm-hmm. it, you know it's that desire to really put resources into the hands of the folks that I know need them most that being said the belief that communities have the solution and more specific to that that communities that have been historically underinvested right and and I'll say this like I have a very <laughs> like, loving critique of philanthropy in that way, right? <laughs> like, I just—I know that people that come into this work are not, you know, Machiavellian, right? Like, nobody right. wants to—but um, but we all are complicit to some extent sure. in, right? in some of the same challenges that we want to— and the barriers that we want to dismantle. Mm-hmm. And so when we think about the legacy of, you know, anti-black people, white supremacy, you know, we dress a lot of that philosophy up— and we back that up in ways that show up in our disbelief of people being able to be active agents in their own change. Right. And the belief and the trust that we know that they have those solutions, if we get that right, I feel like everything else is sort of easy, right? right. If You know, I think about—I was listening to something, I don't know, recently, and, you know, they were describing sort of venture capitalism, right, and how 75 percent believe— of venture capitalism supports pred- predominantly white men, right. um, by predominantly white men, mm-hmm. and what we know is that you know a large percentage of those dollars are never repaid. So what if we were to flip that philosophy on its ear and we were to you know look at that being black women in particular? Like, would that industry even exist? Right, <laughs> right, right, because it's the belief in the ideas mm. in the capacity of people that really drive our investments in in those communities. So anyway, I just, I I think all the things that you named, I would love to see continue. And what was just most motivating and energizing to me is the belief and the trust Mm. that has developed. And, you know, ultimately opportunities where we can begin to see aligned partnership Mm. as compared to
1: leadership. Tell me more about what you mean by that.
0: I think that, for me, the pandemic gave us an opportunity to reevaluate and reimagine what we mean by leadership, right? And historically, I think, you know, we've seen, you know, some folks called it like, you know, parachuting philanthropy in communities where, you know, folks come in with their their thoughts and their solutions, and right. and that while maybe Mm well-intentioned, doesn't always lead us to the most equitable outcomes. Right. So this idea of aligned allyship really does begin to complicate this whole relationship and power dynamic between philanthropy and our partners, right? right? Our role is not necessarily to lead, right? right? Not in every circumstance. Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, it's like, well, what could align partnership look like when we put a financial filter on that or you know a relationship filter on that right those are hard conversations that Um, you know
1: yeah (laughs) (laughs)
0: right like we got to be willing to have right
1: which is why we need to have them because they're hard right because
0: they're hard they're hard and yeah so I think that is what kind of like keeps me up at night Mm. is like Am I, a worthy, am, am I a worthy ally in this moment, mm. more so than am I a leader?
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So a part of the series, uh, we want to be looking at things that are happening now and things that are on the horizon and also imagining some things that could be, right? So kind of going from what is to what's new to What's next to what if? So, what's now? Let's talk a little bit about donor advised funds. Now, these are uh, the financial vehicle that folks can use to distribute some of their resources to nonprofit folks. And they offer a tax advantage that is very attractive for people to take advantage of. And donor-advised funds were in the news lately around some um, proposed legislation. And so can you just talk a little bit about what donor-advised funds, or DAFs for short, are? Because I know that the foundation works extensively with folks that ask the foundation to basically steward their funds through these vehicles. Um, Can you just explain kind of what they are and how they work?
0: Yeah. So DAFs, donor-advised funds, are simply put, are like charitable checkbooks hmm. where individuals can um, make contributions into their fund and those dollars, those those resources are then stewarded, administered by a supporting organization, many instances, foundations, mm-hmm. to um, administer those dollars into the community. The name suggests Donor Advised, right? So it's really where the donor wants to invest mm-hmm. While there's, you know, often education and influence that foundation staff will have just in case, you know, in the event that they want to learn more about an organization mm-hmm. or they're interested in maybe funding in a new area where, you know, we work with them on that. But the, it really is uh, maintained by the donor. Mm-hmm. And there are sort of two types that are characterized really by the kind of maybe giving that the donor may want to do. So there's an endowed fund and there's an expendable and the expendable really is characterized by um, someone that may want to have more of an aggressive grant-making yeah. trajectory. So they really see themselves giving maybe over you know, a shorter period of time, maybe one to five years. Right. So they want to get those dollars out relatively quickly hmm. versus someone that might open an endowed fund, which is really where they, they want to see maybe a, a longer-term giving trajectory. Hmm. So there's essentially you know the corpus that sort of remains intact – and then a percentage of that fund goes out through grant making um, annually. There are different reasons and advantages and disadvantages to having, you know, an endowed versus you know an expendable, but both in theory and in practice are designed to get, you know, charitable resources out into the communities mm-hmm. and to support, you know, causes in our communities that that our local community care about. So in terms of like the re- sort of reaction to the legislation. You know, there's a lot of swirling debate (laughs) around this, right? Um, And I know it's become somewhat contentious Mm -hmm. that DAFs are sort of serving as warehouses for the wealthy, right? And, you know, I I can't say that that's not happening, right? But what I can say is that for many, and I'll and I'll speak for community foundations because I think we're unique in that way. Many community foundations are working very aggressively with donors to get grant making, to ensure that grant making is happening through DAFs. Mm -hmm. And some of that that is just in sort of the donor education that we do, regular sort of conversations with our donors, Mm -hmm. policies, right? So after some period of time, if it's low or no grant activity on a DAF, you know, many foundations will grant on behalf, right? Really? Yes.
1: Oh, I had no idea. Yes.
0: So there are policies that really help protect from things like that happening. And so will this new legislation, if passed, will it encourage more grant-making out of DAFs? I don't know. Mm. Will it disincentivize people from opening DAFs? Maybe. Maybe, right. Will it add uh, an administrative burden on foundations who are administering the funds? Probably. Probably. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so I think that it's a solution to a problem that I don't know exists Hmm. yet for many foundations. Interesting. And so I think that's where it gets a little fuzzy. There's like a saying, like, once you know one community foundation, you know one community foundation.
1: Right. <laughs> oh, I like right?
0: that. Like no one works the same oh, right wow. and so I just I feel like a sweeping Legislation doesn't necessarily get at maybe the intent right. behind what it's trying to do, which I think is a good conversation to have.
1: Well, for sure. sure, right. I mean, there's some estimates, um, 132 trillion, like no. <laughs> a, a bajillion right. dollars is sitting around <laughs> tied up in dafts that could be theoretically on the streets having an impact, right? And that's what critics, you know, problem is it, is that it's, it can be, particularly in the hands of, like, private family yeah. foundations, not so much, like, community foundations. It's kind of an important to understand the difference. Mm-hmm. You know, the folks can set this chunk of money into a private little vehicle, name mm-hmm. their family members as the board members, pay the family members out of the money of the... And, re- and it's that's kind of obscene, yeah. right? Obviously, yeah. that's not the spirit of why DAFs were designed. Yeah. So there is some potential for misuse, shall we say, of that financial vehicle, which I suppose if you think about it, any financial vehicle has the potential inherently for abuse.
0: For abuse, absolutely. And I think that the question of like now versus later, I mean, I think that there are advantages. So kind of get it back to like what's important to me most when I think about this conversation is maybe less about whether DAFs should exist or not exist. To me, it's like, what are we doing this for? Right. Right. Because I think, you know, I I have little doubt that in 50 years philanthropy will you know, not be here. I think philanthropy will be here. Mm. Right. So but if we were to think about these mechanisms, strategies, you know, there are definitely strategies related to long term investment that are of high value, Mm -hmm. particularly when we start looking at it through an equity lens. So having a longer term investment in on-the-ground strategies that really help build up the capacity of local organizations and local residents to build opportunities for self-sufficiency, for right. economic and social empowerment, I'm all here for it, right? right? Like, if an endowment <laughs> can help us do that, Right. yes and yes, right? If there—when we think about, like, getting back to the pandemic, when we saw how critical it was—because I know some statistics suggest that, you know, with in 2020, that— grant-making out of DAFs nationally exploded, right, Right. because of the pandemic. So when we think about, particularly as, you know, government sort of struggled in mm-hmm, the beginning to mm-hmm. get money into, you know, communities, those unrestricted dollars mm-hmm. to help local nonprofits pivot and respond, absolutely critical, right? right. And, right. and that flexibility can be really valuable Even when, as we said earlier, foundation, traditional foundation giving, maybe not so flexible, maybe not so responsive. Mm -hmm. So I think just getting us closer to that conversation of like, what are we doing it for and are we actually building towards a more equitable future, utilizing these mechanisms is an exciting
1: conversation to have. It is. You know, in fact, I was talking with somebody at a local nonprofit lately and she had a donor who was planning to sell her house and she wanted the sale of her house to benefit this org. And she also wanted it to be used to further social justice, right? And so this ED was grappling in her head about how do I help her structure this gift in a way that honors her intent, gives her the, you know, there is a tax benefit to this donor, and doesn't keep perpetuating harms, furthers my personal goals of social justice and equity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's a, it's a tough question. Mm-hmm. I wasn't able to answer it for <laughs> her. I don't think I still am, but I'm going to keep asking. Keep yeah. asking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do think that kind of
0: creative both case making, but creative solution, Mm -hmm. right, is sense making. I don't know if that makes sense, but, (laughs) you know, that that all is a part of it. And, you know, I'm learning every day, to be quite honest, about, um, you know, how to better align investment and and opportunity. And that gets back to, like, what's philanthropy's role in being an allied partner versus Mm -hmm. a leader, right? right? But the conversation in and of itself is a useful one that, that I think we should continue to have. Mm. I have cautious suspicion about federal overregulation. Right. So, you know, that being said, yeah, I I want to see the conversation continue. And I think that the closer we get to ensuring that what we're really talking about is equity and acknowledging the historic legacy of wealth generation in this country, mm-hmm. it's kind of a both and. Right. Right. It's an and also. Right. So I appreciate the debate. I appreciate the conversation. And to your point, I think, you know, there's there's a lot of room for deep thinking around this. Mm-hmm. I just know that where I sit, you know, we have very motivated donors in our region, which we're really excited about, right. you know, and part of what makes Big Dave Giving, for example, my favorite, your day of favorite the year. day of the ah, year. Big I don't. Dave giving. Wait, let me tell you, like <laughs> Marissa is like, if I could just bottle Big Day up and just like take it with me everywhere. I always go back to really your motivating panel or motivating workshop last year with the, the boot camp. First of all, that went viral. Like everyone knows oh that. God. And like we're just like constantly like I, I I like wrote down all your like I was like, Oh my god, that's a hashtag. That's a quote. Um, I love that because you brought such clarity to what felt like such an uneasy time. Mm-hmm. And it was such an empowering place to be in just like hearing how you summed it all up in that way. But the engine behind that program is individual donors right right
1: that's why I <laughs> right it. like that's the power
0: <laughs> of that and particularly in a region like ours where we don't have big philanthropy right individual giving is so 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 key yeah those unrestricted dollars so 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 key so you know i have i hold all of those things right as we're thinking about all of this and i would hate to see anything get in the way of of folks being able to, you know, contribute in big and small ways to the community that they love. Right. So it's a big conversation. Like yeah. it's not I guess it's not easy. Right. So there's no, like, easy solution, but...
1: If it was, we'd all be out I mean, of work right now. <laughs> we'd all you know, be out of work, ah, right? Which, I mean, would probably, like, we want to work ourselves out of, out of a job, right? ideally. Right. Just not maybe today. <laughs> like, right. tomorrow would be okay. Just not today. Yeah, give like, me a little
0: more time. Give me a Just, minute. Yeah. <laughs> a little more time.
1: <laughs> but, okay. no, it's true. You bring up, like, my favorite thing. But the, the, there are so many things for me to love about the big day of giving. And I think... One of them is really the sense of ownership and donorship that I think it enabled in people that never would have used the word donor Mm -hmm. to describe themselves, including my own very self, okay? Even if I have supported various organizations, like I never – A donor is like (laughs) daddy fat cat sitting (laughs) on a wad of cash. And that's unfortunately never quite, you know, described me. Mm -mm. But Big Day of Giving changed that mindset for me. And I think for, you know, how many thousands of donors each year who now I think would like identify with that term Mm -hmm. I am a donor Mm -hmm. I am an owner Mm -hmm. of this community I put in because this is me this is mine this Mm -hmm. is my town Mm -hmm. that's what I love about big day of giving and the weird thing is I actually hate giving Tuesday and it's like (laughs) people can come for me for that but I honestly I can't stand it I can't stand it, it. and I'll tell you why, right? First of all, I don't like where it's timed. Like, it's an afterthought, like Boxing Day after Christmas in England. It's the time to (laughs) toss the, you know, crumbs to the poor after you've had your feast. You give them all your leftover leftover (laughs) crumbs after the shopping and all the buying and consumerism, right? But also, my problem with it is it's it's, not—it's too amorphous. It's floating around up in the air. It's not tied to me, my community— even though my local orgs that I know ask on that day, I don't yeah. give on that day. No, I don't give at all on that day. Yeah. I don't. And doesn't I quite won't.
0: make sense. Right? I won't. Yeah. It doesn't
1: make sense Mm-mm. to me. Mm-mm. Now yeah. I will. Big day of giving. I'm yeah. like, okay, okay. Am I going to add on to my <laughs> list from last year? Okay, there's room for like two more. Like, okay, oh, I really really like this one. Or okay, all right, all right, I'll make room for them on the list. Yeah. Like, no, that's what that's about to me. It is. It, you're right. I never
0: thought about it that way yeah because i struggle each year i'm like when when is good what what is that thing again it's just this made up thing it's a weird like, thing like who even, owns what it what like where does that? it go yeah it's, right it is weird and i think i love what big day of has become and and i use the word cautiously but it does feel it's like a movement it is right because people own it yes. and it's not
1: ours right you know
0: and i love that
1: i do too I love that it's not ours. It is the communities. Well, I think that was a really smart move early on. And I don't know who made that decision <laughs> at the foundation, but somebody decided this is too big for us to own. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to decentralize it. Mm-hmm. We're going to um, source talent from within the community mm-hmm. and ask them to help us deliver the training and mm-hmm. mentor the people. Mm-hmm. And we're going to and that is why it is what it is today.
0: Absolutely. It has taken on its own life. And energy. And I, you know, I always get excited at going on other people's socials and being like, oh, who did you give to? And learning about new organizations and because we're learning all the time as well. Sure. So when we think about like I always think of big day as like the people's philanthropy. Totally. Right. Like that's that's the people's philanthropy. It really is. That's exciting. Yeah. That's exciting. And. Yes. I mean, behind the scenes, big up my team, big up the foundation. So much work goes into just the management side of it. But the money part, that's y'all. <laughs> right. You know, like that's the community right. making decisions yeah. on its own about what it wants to support. And I just think that that's a beautiful, beautiful um, man. I, it's a it's a it's our story. It's our yeah. song. Yes. That's why it feels that way. Right. 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 So. That's the part of philanthropy that I'd love for us to continue to tap into as a community. Like, how do we continue to, like, build on that model and take the parts of it that work really well and start to find applications for it and other kinds of work? You know, I'm seeing I am seeing more now than ever partnerships with philanthropy and government and, you know, business and right like. We're all coming to the table, community folks that are like, okay, we've been here, thank you, but um, (laughs) thanks so much. Um, But but are like coming to the table and bringing new ideas and are trying to problem solve things together. And I think that kind of collaboration, I feel like that's the future of philanthropy. I do too. You know, yeah, that's what I'd like. At least
1: I hope it is. Yeah, right. It's kind of like, because why shouldn't it be? Why shouldn't it be? It's doable. We can do it. So, Neva, oh, my gosh, we have covered so much. I can't even believe it. There's so many more things I have to ask you. Do you think you could possibly come back and talk with us again for a second episode? Absolutely. Anything for you. (laughs) Yay. All right. Well, let's come back and talk more because I really want to think about the future of philanthropy and what it means for us. This is a production of the Impact Foundry, Northern California's nonprofit resource center. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, share and give us a thumbs up. Be sure to register for the What If Conference taking place on February 8th and 10th, 2022. Available in person and virtually. Early bird registrations are available until December 31st Register. At whatifconference.org.